Hello and welcome, friends, to David Nickturn's Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast, episode number 21, Conscious Marketing with Kylie Slavic on the Be Here Now Network. You know, that's a really good Buddhist question. Why do you not have what you say you want? In this episode, David and Kylie explore the theme of aligning our creative offering with effective messaging that resonates with people in an authentic manner while we balance doing and being. The doers left the being behind and the beers left the doing behind. Yeah, we need to reintegrate. Which is my whole platform is, all, is, is completely about that. And speaking of David's platform, we are excited to announce that www.dharmamoon.com is now live. And you are all welcome to join our growing online community where we deepen our practice and understanding of meditation together and use the practice as a vehicle to cultivate creativity, community, and clarify our vision of right livelihood. And without further ado, episode number 21. So welcome to another episode of Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast. We have a very special guest today, it's Kylie Slavic, who... Um, I'll just give you a little bit of an orientation of um, her background. I'm going to read from her bio. As a former spoken word artist, Kylie discovered that grabbing attention and winning hearts works the same way in marketing as it does in art. Since then, she's worked with Hollywood story consultants to better understand structure and neuroscientists to learn how the brain responds to story. She's generated over $22 million in revenue with clients in the transformation space, including Sounds True, Astrology Hub, HeartMath Institute, and more. Kylie currently serves as the Director of Storytelling and Brand Development at Conscious Marketer. And I just want to say that that's how I met Kylie, is because I signed up for a, a mastermind course um, with the Conscious Marketer Fellowship, and she's the co-director of that course, and I just found her to be, um, well, um, very well-spoken and clear-minded. And then additionally, um, very, very creative in terms of taking ideas from the inception stage to the presentation stage. And I think you, you um, I try to help people find their groove. That's kind of a big part of the CSM platform. And it feels like you found your groove. Do you feel like you found your groove? I think the groove keeps on grooving, but I have definitely hit the right spot. You know what I mean? In in the right zone? Yeah, exactly. It keeps on deepening, but I feel like, yes, I'm in the right lane. Yeah. And, you know, all of us have things. You're, a, you're what I call a hybrid. That's a sort of term I'm using a lot these days. And particularly, um, I think one of the things that's coming up over and over again is the uh, the people coming on to the scene these days are more looking for purpose-driven uh, occupational uh, relationship, you know, like not just getting a job or getting, you know, getting, making money or so. Um, so would you, would you describe yourself in that way as purpose-driven? Definitely. I've always been that way. And in fact, in the beginning of my non-career, I was so purpose-driven that I worked in bars because <laughs> I didn't want to do anything except for write poetry. And that was my purpose. And I wanted to have jobs that I could just up and quit at any moment if I wanted to go travel and do poetry or something like that. Yeah. You, you know, that joke, you know, the guy's in the restaurant and he wants a drink and he raises his hand. He says, Oh, uh, actress, could you bring me a, a, a <laughs> vodka martini? You know? So, um, 
In other words, you didn't want to be, you, you kept your options open by doing that kind of work so that you could do what you really loved. Exactly. And I, I dedicated like five hours a day to writing, you know, and I would work my shift and come home and write and perform. And that was pretty much it. Wow. I felt very on purpose. Yeah. Wow. And where were you writing and performing? Where, what venues? I lived in Gainesville, Florida, and we were a pretty small town. It's, you know, if it's not football and the Gators, there's not much to say. So, uh -huh. you know, but we actually started our own venue. It was called Third Eye Spoken. I was 22 or 23 at that time. And we, we actually brought top talent to us. So, you know, we noticed a need in the community. We started it. It was very successful. And so we ran the events. We booked the events. We performed at the events and pretty much did everything. Was it all like slam style? It was, mm -hmm. it well, not spontaneous, but the slam poetry isn't necessarily freestyle. Certainly some people do that at some points in time. Usually it's written and then memorized and performed. The thing that makes it quote unquote slam is that it's a competition. Oh, and I didn't the, know that. Uh -huh. And the one thing that we did was we took the competition element out of it. It was the same style of poetry, but we didn't really, we weren't into that part of it. Yeah. Yeah. How would you, how would you um, compete anyhow? Just uh, sort of style points and uh, degree of difficulty points like diving. The crazy part about it is they pick like four judges from the audience and, oh. but the judges are supposed to go off the audience response. Uh -huh, I see. So it's visceral response from the audience. Mm -hmm. So if you made somebody think deeply, that didn't necessarily register some big points. It depends. You know, it, yes, you want people to think deeply and feel deeply, but there, I did notice there were certain themes that were more popular than others, you know? So a lot of, that was the sad part about it is a lot of people figured out what would win and they started just doing that. And I think that that's when I started to kind of move away from it. And and you um, have a thriving career now, as far as I'm able to discern. And you know, one of the things in my um, uh, kind of uh, entertainment business dimension of my of my life is recognizing talent. That's I've spent a whole lifetime doing that. So, in in my estimation, for what it's worth, I, I see you as a rising rocket ship of a uh, you know somebody who's really got a clear lane and a clear focus, and you can deliver on, on them dot on you know uh what it is that you're offering so um but now you're telling us about a part of your life that i can really relate to like you 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 know for somebody who's a musician or a, a painter or whatever is that stuff in the closet where is that now where is the slamming kylie where is she <laughs> well i it's funny when i started writing ads and emails and things like that which is what i do today the inspiration to write a poem just stopped coming to me it, it used to be like I would wake up in the middle of the night and this poem would be like, get up and write me down. And if you don't, you're not going to sleep. I mean, it was, I'd be at work and I'd be scribbling on napkins. It just kind of poured out of me all the time. And as soon as I started writing as, as a career, it just stopped coming. You know, this week I actually thought to myself, what would I have to do to open that door again? You know, and I'm not yeah. exactly sure. So wow. there have been, you have yeah. to be careful be, if you, if you, you know, it's like people talking about having a baby. If they start talking about it, it you know, they come, you know. So, um, yeah, totally. If you're, if you're um, you know, it's an interesting process, and there's a couple of different things I want us to talk about today. But uh, the creative process itself is such a mystery. 
It is. You know, it it's is. Just like what is happening there? It's almost like somebody's on the inside already. They're knocking to get out, you know. Um, I know. <laughs> it's so, so true. But you're channeling that. And this is something I've had to do a lot in my life is channel that creative thing. You know, I've written for television and films and stuff like that. And you're not just a free hand, you know, uh, of, of, mm-hmm. of pure creativity. You're, you're directing it for a purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder, I mean, if, um, if it starts knocking, will you, will you let it in? Oh, I definitely would. I'm starting to want to do videos where I do spoken word and do pictures over it and put them out on social platforms. So I don't really want to perform live anymore because the sheer amount of time that that takes to memorize the poem and to, you know, practice and everything like that. I just don't have that bandwidth, but mm. I, I started to want to make videos recently. Uh-huh. Okay. More multimedia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, you may or may not know this, but, um, you know, the Tibetan Buddhist teacher that I studied with Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche was really the um, source code for a lot of um, the style of how we're presenting Dharma and how we're presenting kind of everyday life um, connection um, started in the early 70s in Boulder, Colorado, when Naropa University was just a little baby, uh, mm-hmm. Naropa Institute. And one of the kind of seminal things, other than Ramdas being there for, for a summer, was um, that Trungpa Rinpoche was really into poetry. I don't know if you mm-hmm. know that or not, mm-hmm. and was really quite a, quite a good poet himself. But he had Allen Ginsberg. Mm-hmm. And they had the Jack uh, and Gregory Corso, and they had the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics. <laughs> and so they would cool. slam. They would get up there and they would, uh, you know, um, Rinpoche's thing was to get to the spontaneous part of your expression. So mm-hmm. uh, he would put people uh, right on the spot. So Allen Ginsberg was a kind of key member. And I actually went to my Buddhist seminary with Allen. And I used to play with him, actually play guitar with him on, on some, uh, some outings. And it was uh, part of our culture, which is part of what we're doing now, like that those kinds of forms of expression were considered part of the Dharmic mm-hmm. culture. Now, in some Buddhist schools, you know, it's pretty straight and you don't ever know what anybody does otherwise. And, um, you know, so are you familiar with Alan's poetry Mm -hmm. at all? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was and he was a beautiful, beautiful person. He 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 did a poetry um, workshop for my son when he was 10 years old. Just the kids went to his apartment in the East Village and they and he just taught them really about finding the spontaneous expression in their mind, how to put words together in interesting ways. So it's, uh, I wish you could have been there. I would have been. I'm, I know some of you would have dug. Me too. I wish I could have been there too. But I like hearing that he was a good guy. I think he was uh, an unusual and and um, a perfect, you know, hybrid of what we're talking about because he was mm-hmm. definitely a Dharma person mm-hmm. and a creative person. And um, you know, one thing that sometimes artists just can't help being who they are. I mean, that's mm-hmm. it's interesting. You look at somebody. Um, like in, in the in the music world, and you go, that person's just so eccentric and so unique and so particular. And uh, Alan was kind of like that. He was just yeah. himself, and he was loving though. He was a very tender-hearted person too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, we'll have to see if that door knocks on it. But meanwhile, you and I are sharing an adventure right now of this idea of conscious marketing. So I wanted to mm-hmm. you know see if you could, um, and it seems to be a wave that's coming in pretty big. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, uh, like you, you and Richard Tobinger, who's your partner, have almost uh, spearheaded a, or or been involved with seminally a, a movement of um, what used to be kind of eclectic people expressing themselves in to niche audiences and bringing that out further to the mainstream. Um, and you, you guys have a certain um, 
fearless uh, interest in propelling the business aspect, the marketing aspect of doing that without, without, you know, uh, without spoiling the content. So I think people would like to hear more about that. If, you, if, you, if there's anything you feel like you would want to say, share about what your process is, what, what, what conscious marketing is. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I accidentally discovered it when somebody asked me in 2012 to write them a Facebook ad, and I had just started to dip my toe into transitioning from being an artist to working online, and I had a job as a content manager, and this woman asked me to write an ad. I didn't know anything about writing ads. I didn't know how to write an ad. I didn't know how to run an ad. I didn't know anything about it, but I wrote one in a very similar style of how I would write poetry. And we ended up, I'm allowed to say this number, but we ended up spending $575 over a weekend and generating 67,500 in sales. And it was like the business owner called me and said that they checked the reporting five times before they called because (laughs) they were so confused about it, you know, and I didn't know, I actually had no idea that that was a really outstanding return on investment. I didn't know anything about it. So they asked me, can you do that again? And I said, well, sure. You know, (laughs) I I just didn't know anything. So I just kept telling stories and we ended up with a two and a half million dollar launch in 12 weeks. And I mean, that wasn't obviously just me. It takes a whole team of people to do that. But my portion was the front end that ad that first point of contact. So after that, people started asking me if I could teach them how to tell stories or write stories or do this story marketing. And I knew I wasn't an expert. I I became this overnight expert, but I knew it wasn't true. So I started hiring all these experts. Like you had mentioned Hollywood story consultants, people that they hire to find the holes in the scripts and studying the form of story. And then I was able to start to, you know, replicate my results to varying degrees. I never had a campaign that was that good, but, um, So for me, this idea of conscious marketing is really about just connecting with people in the way that they want to be connected with. And if we look at history, telling stories is, you know, how we learn, how we survive, how we connect, creates oxytocin in the brain, makes us feel connected to each other. So Mm. for, for me, you know, Richard and I have a great relationship because he's like the launch guy and the offer guy and the structure guy. And I really come in and go, all right, if we want to move this thing and we want to sell this thing, what does the audience need to hear to get to like get on board with that? Yeah, it's it's um, energetically an impressive pairing in the sense that you <laughs> complement each other, you know, as the way you're saying. So l- let me ask you this, um, conscious marketing, uh, breaking it down, what does mm-hmm. conscious mean? Mm-hmm. Conscious That's of an- what, you know? That's a really interesting question. And, you know, Richard and I sometimes talk about how he's had a company called Conscious Marketer for 10 years, but so many other people have come along and used that word, you know, that we're kind of like, what does it even mean? You know, I think from a Jungian perspective, it it means, you know, bringing what's deep below the surface up to the light to be seen. Uh-huh. Okay. And I think from our perspective, what, you know, I can't speak for Richard, but for me, it's, it's really marketing selling in a way that is congruent with your values, your ethics, your principles. Mm -hmm. And an added layer is that you can actually make as much, if not more money doing that, which has been something that I've been on a mission to prove to people for a long time, because a lot of people just don't believe it. Yeah. That's now why is that true? 
I think it's true because there's this concept called market sophistication. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it, but it's an old copywriting model that a guy, I think it was Eugene Schwartz came up with it like a hundred years ago. And it's a pyramid with five levels and it shows how a market matures based on the messages that they see. So at one level, the, the sophistication is nobody's ever seen it before. So you literally just need to say what the thing is. Hmm. And that would be like when the iPhone came out, you know, Hmm. it's a phone, it's a computer. You can put it in your pocket. Cool. That's it. You know, you don't need to say anything else. Apple has a tendency to have like one sentence long marketing because what they're doing is new. And then at that top level, at that fifth level, it's essentially oversaturation. So you're in a space of, you know, I've seen it, I've been promised all the things, none of it worked. I'm frustrated. I still have the same problem. Nobody's really been able to solve my problem. So now your market is at a sophistication level where they're just not going to tolerate any BS. Like they're not going to tolerate any more of it because they've already done that didn't work. Mm -hmm. So I think most markets other than tech and maybe pharmaceuticals a little bit, you know, there's, there's some industries here and there that could still be at that level one of really bringing something into the world. Nobody's ever seen, but for the most part, we've seen everything. We've heard everything. And now we want the truth because we still have this burning problem and we don't want a smoke and mirror solution anymore. And especially in the market, Richard and I are in, it's really the transformational markets. It's especially true in those markets. And, you know, it's my perception since we started to work together and since I started working on the Dharma Moon project this year altogether, uh, not to my shock, but, you know, keep in mind that I got into this in 1970 when four people knew what Buddhism was, you know, or meditation. There was, um, it was wildly esoteric. And you can mm-hmm. see some of the early recordings from that time. And it's basically a bunch of hippies and some uh, Asian teachers coming together in a kind of unlikely uh, gathering. And now I, I did have inklings in my um, you know, earlier times that this was going to reach a certain critical mass. I had mm-hmm. certain dreams, certain mm-hmm. visualizations, like a lot of people are going to be coming into this world. And th- it seems like that time is kind of now. Mm-hmm. And it seems like everybody and his Aunt Gertrude <laughs> is, is now offering some kind of conscious you know, spiritual thing. And, you know, I said at one of our meetings, I said, oh my gosh, this has become the new record business. Yeah. There's, there's millions of lemmings swimming into the sea so with, their, with their books and, and their presentations. Um, is there a saturation point? Is, is, how does this all shake out? Is this a good thing? Is it a, mm-hmm. is it a strange thing? What is this? What's happening? In terms of the sort of markets that I play in the transformational stuff, like you're saying, spirituality transformation, I don't think it's hit a saturation point. If you are legit and you have a real, like you are living your teachings. If you're really truly embodying and living your teachings, then I think people can feel that and they want to be around it. But I have definitely seen a shake off in the last like five years there. I, I was thinking a lot, like somewhere along the lines in our conversation, I was thinking about how, 10, 15 years ago, you could do a seminar on spirituality or business or marketing or coaching and have a live event, put 50 people in the room and make $2 million, you know, at that event. And that is not common anymore. I've had a lot of those people actually come to me and say, how do I fix this? You know, like, what do we do? And 
And the answer really that I tell them is you have to fix your model, your business, not your marketing, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like it's, so I think that there isn't a saturation point for something that's legitimately valuable, but if it's kind of snake oil, I think it's over. I think that, 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 that those days are over. I think I'd like to think. Good slogan, Kelly, fix your business, not your marketing. You know, there's actually a great story about this. One of my favorite stories is called Winning the Story Wars. I think it's a book that everybody should read. Oh. And and it's a it's a guy that has an advert like a video advertising company and he distills really complicated ideas that nobody wants to think about into these super cool funny videos that get downloaded in 20 languages. And so one of the things he tells this story about a guy named Honest John and he was writing ads for, I think, do you remember the Woolworth stores that used to be around like 20 years ago? I, I do remember them from even yeah. long, from even longer yeah. ago than that. Yeah. My grandma used to send me to them when I was a little kid. And, um, wow. and he was writing the ads for them. And he was one of the reasons they became so successful. But what he did was he would write these ads and he would say things like neckties. They're not that great, but they're only $15. (laughs) (laughs) And the people would get so mad, you know, (laughs) I know. And the people, and the people would get so mad, but he would sell them out every Sunday, you know, every, every day that the ads ran. And so he's telling that story. And he was really saying like, look, if you can't tell the truth in your ads and have that truth sell, you need to fix your business until you can. And so I, that, that really stood out to me. And I tell people that to this day, look, if you can't tell the truth in your marketing, let's not worry about your marketing. Let's worry about your truth. You know, what a great, um, through line, especially in this culture at this time when it's so outer externally oriented, Mm -hmm. um, that's a really, um, I think you would find people in the business world who would say, yeah, that's the naive perspective. That's mm-hmm. you know, that's somebody who hasn't really played in the hardball, hardball mm-hmm. world of it. But um, it's an amazing perspective, and then it, uh, it you know it keeps you on a straight uh, trajectory. You don't have to remember what you said from yeah, shot to ex- shot. You know exactly, exactly. <laughs> and you know what's funny about what you just said in terms of people that would probably think someone who could say something like that wasn't hitting the sales numbers. It's right. I have a a mentor named Robert McKee. He's not like a personal mentor, but I've just really studied his work and he did a workshop and he was, he wrote a book called story. It's one of the screenwriting school Bibles, you know, one of the top two or three books. And he has, his students have written some of the best screenplays of our, of our times. Mm. The ones that don't follow the boring formula. A lot of them, he kind of has his hand in those films And he switched a lot of the Hollywood guys switched to doing brand storytelling in the last five, six years. I think they realized that entrepreneurs have more money than screenwriters. So so they kind of switched it up and he, he works with a lot of really big corporations. And he said that the, the people at the top of the corporations get really mad at him when he says like, we have to show the human vulnerable side of your company. We have to position you as the underdog. You can't come out swinging like this big overlord and think people are going to connect with you and they get really mad and they don't want to do it. But when they finally concede their sales, like there's a big difference in the sales. Yeah. I mean, there's such an intriguing relationship in business between marketing and sales. Totally. I, I have um, 
you know, in, in my book, I have this thing called the business body, just an analogy of the human body, that the, the left leg is R&D or, um, you know, exploration uh, of what the field that you're in is. So that's like a pharmaceutical company. We just have people in lab coats going like, what happens if I pour this into this poor little rabbit here and what, <laughs> what happens? The other, the, the right leg then, the other leg is um, fashioning that into a product, product development. Mm-hmm. And then the arms, you come up to the arms, and the left arm is marketing, which you want to distribute and get information out to people. Salespeople are collectors. They want to pull the energy in. And the heart of the business is, is the heart. And then the head is the admin, and the ears are customer service. You know, So totally. marketing and sales, I've been intrigued by that in the companies that I've worked with, the difference in the mindset of mm-hmm. those two people. You guys are very sales-oriented for marketing mm-hmm. people. You like to put the numbers up on the board and, and talk about that. A lot of marketing people, they say, that's not my job. <laughs> I, think, I definitely think that selling is a marketer's job. And, you know, one of my, me and Richard talk about this guy, Travis Sago, a lot. He's one of the smartest living marketers, in my opinion. And he talks about like a golf course analogy. He said that when you swing and you take that first shot, that is the marketing and you want to get it as close to that hole as you can. <laughs> and then the people who are doing the selling, the marketing should have been so good that the salespeople just have to kind of put it in with yeah. one or two strokes, you know? Yeah. And I really believe that selling yeah. is like arm wrestling if the marketing people don't do their jobs well, you know? Beautifully put and, you know, experientially lived. Uh, that's so interesting. And of course, then there's another dimension now, which we've sneakily, from my point of view, entered a whole new era, which is digital marketing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, it kind of crept, I mean, people like you obviously maybe more closely grew up with that imminence uh, in, your, in your, but people who've seen print ads and, and television and those kind of things, the digital um, marketing is potentially limitless, it seems, to mm-hmm. reach people that way. It's like uh, there's a vastness to it. Mm-hmm. Um, is there is there a key like just somebody who's studying marketing should study digital marketing explicitly to really understand the, that there might be some new rules there, some new parameters? I think anyone who wants to be a student of marketing should first be a student of psychology. Actually, <laughs> I think that's much more important than the actual medium that you put it in. I will say, you know, I grew up in the '80s, and so mostly the '80s, and so I did, you know, get those multicolored flyers in the mailbox and TV commercials and radio commercials. And a lot of times, if you study the history of advertising, they'll tell you though, that's what was called interruptive advertising. You had no choice, but to look at it. Therefore it didn't need to be very creative. It Mm. could just be, um, obnoxious, you know? Yeah. And, uh, now with social media coming out and being the main form of advertising that you can track, what, what happened was all of a sudden, let's say like Elon puts up an ad for his Tesla car, which he really doesn't even need to do. Now, all of a sudden you have a hundred people in the feed saying like, I bought it and it didn't work. You know, this broke on it after three yeah. days. Or, right. <laughs> so, so now that's the difference right now. Now it's a user generated experience where uh-huh. you mm-hmm. you're forced into being transparent at this point. And mm. that's the difference between print advertising and digital media, I think. But I also think if you want to be good at either one of them, understand motivation, psychology. It's really like the biggest thing I could say about it. Why do people not have what they say they want? 
And why did wait, they wait, not? Wait, wait, wait. Slow that down, Kylie. Say yeah. that again. Say that again. Yeah. Why do people not, not have, have what they what say they, say they, they want? want? Yeah. Oh, oh that's, you, I'm sure you've used that line, right? Oh, I use it in every email I ever write, every ad I ever write, because uh-huh. if they're coming to me or one of my clients for a solution to a problem, yeah. I have to assume they've already tried to solve the problem, right? Yeah. Wow. So why didn't it work? And that's where I need to meet them. You know, that's a really good Buddhist question. Why do you not have what you say you want? Yeah, it's very spiritual. Well, it is because you're asking somebody to uh, clarify yeah. from their end rather than I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deliver something that I think you need. Mm-hmm. What do you think people do really want? What do they want? Well, I think probably they all want what you're serving up, which is to know who they really are and be in that enlightened state, right? That's what we all want. But in terms of my clients, I have to look at it case by case. So sometimes, you know, it's a spiritual author and they are selling presents and I have to see what is it that people want to be present for? Do they want to be present because they just want to feel spiritually liberated? Do they want to be present with their kids? Do they want to be present because it helps them better at their job? You know, so I have to really look at that. Yeah. What what do you, what do people say they want, and what is stopping them from having it? And that's where the marketing lives. I mean, one argument you could make, just as an observer of uh, human beings, is that they don't really want to be present. <laughs> yeah, that's also very true. Sad, if you just true. follow the action, you know, the, a lot of the action <laughs> is directed towards not being present. Yeah, that's a sad truth. Well, yeah, called first noble truth. You know, I mean. It's, um, you know, I told you and Richard that I had this idea that um, because you, you're both so colorful and in and, and, and such complimentary ways and delivering so much, um, you know, juicy, thought-out kind of information, what if we took a, 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 an animated series and I want to do a cartoon version of each of you and as a marketing team, you go back and you visit Buddha and then you, you go forward and then you visit Jesus Christ and you say, look, if you only, if, you know, here's the market, what you got to do, and you know, it could be a little Woody Allen kind of energy to the whole thing. What you got to do is, um, you know, just really say what you authentically uh, think. And then, uh, you know, how would you guide, uh, those people are really incredible marketers in a, from a certain mm-hmm. perspective. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Well, if we look at, I know a lot more about Jesus than I do about Buddha, but I, I can tell you, Jesus is arguably one of the most popular people in all of history. <laughs> and there's, and he was just, a, he was actually a Mason, they say, not a carpenter, but mm-hmm. he was a stone layer who died without a penny in his hand, who wasn't successful in any way. He only had 12 followers, according to the Bible. Everybody else hated him and wanted him to die. And <laughs> his legacy is still moving millions, probably billions of people on the planet 2,000 years later. So I would say he's a fantastic marketer. That's really funny. (laughs) You know, I could just see, and then in that scene, Jesus is saying, you know, yeah, I don't know. I feel kind of like a failure. You know, I feel like I have this really good message and it's really, it's really from the heart and I'm really feeling it. And look what I got. I got 12 followers and they're trying to kill me. (laughs) Exactly. No, I know. You, you get the idea for the series, right? And then you move on and you do Muhammad and you do Buddha. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, so spiritually, it's so interesting for me because I'm, you know, 
uh, from a lineage, you know, perspective. In other words, I've been studying with the same uh, thousands of years old teachings that have been through migrations and mutations, but I'm not eclectic spiritually in terms of, um, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of the platforms that are out there, they're, you can do this, and you can say that, you can talk about this. Now, all these people are my friends. I call them the Mahasanga, and I teach at Kripalu and Omega and Blue Spirit. And the, the, a lot of these people get together from different, even different Buddhist tribes. Uh, you know I play guitar with Krishna Das, so I'm with the Bhakti people doing, doing their tradition. So I love that I, how different people frame their spirituality. It's always interesting to me. So I'm curious if you don't mind talking about um, your own spiritual journey. Is that something you feel comfortable talking about? Oh, yeah, totally. I, you know, I met the Sufis when I was 18. And so I have had the great privilege to study with, study pretty extensively with three, just actually four Sufi masters that come from, they come from the Western lineages. So I'm sure it's a little different than if I went to Turkey and if in Turkey, they would teach a woman, which they probably wouldn't, but you know, (laughs) but it's, it's definitely the Western version. It comes from India. It comes from a Sufi teacher from, I believe he's from Delhi and he came to America. And so I have had a good couple of decades really studying that. I, I did, I did study with some Tibetan Buddhists, a woman named Prema Dasara. She, uh, she created this dance called the the 21 praises of Tara or something. Oh, like okay. That. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's done that dance for the Dalai Lama. She actually support, she actually was one of the first people invited into Bhutan to the queen's palace. And she helped women. I guess the, the Buddhist nuns haven't been allowed to dance in certain countries. Uh-huh. And she kind of like busted that door down and, yeah. and, and helped to reinstate dance. And, you know, I've also had some Hindu teachers in my life, so I kind of spanned all of it. And oh, I grew yeah. up, I grew up Christian. I have a great relationship with Christ. And so I'm a little bit of a spiritual mutt. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. But the Sufi thing sounds like it's a strong uh, mm-hmm. and deliberate flavor in there. Um, if you, if let's say, you know, Somebody was just curious about what how Sufism frames um, reality. Is there like a few pithy things that you could share that would would you know uh, express that? You know, all the Sufi orders are different, but from my personal experience, it's a lot about God being everything and being oneness, and really attempting to have union with everything that is. So not every tradition wants union, you know, uh, but, but they, I would say that they are working towards a self-effacement so that you reveal God within yourself and that you're in connection with everything that is, I would say that's kind of, but it sort of has like an ecstatic devotional quality to it. It's not a nothingness, which, you know, some traditions have. Well, yeah. Did you whirl? Uh, a couple of times, not yeah. a lot, not all of the Sufi orders do that, but that's the Mevlevi order, which is Rumi's yeah. order. And a couple of times I was at Sufi retreats where they would have somebody that would teach it. It's not as easy as it looks. Oh, it doesn't even look easy. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we were in Turkey and we went to, a, a, you know, a, a Sufi um, a ceremony and they were whirling for hours. And yeah. it's an amazing practice because... Um, 
you can't do it without a certain inner practice going on. Oh, you, you would no just way. fall over. You know, it's just it's it's one of those mind body things that is unique to that to that um, uh, particular way of focusing the mind at the same time. And yeah. I've I've had some I um, in my record and music life. I did a record with Omar Farouk Tekbelek, who's a wonderful uh, Turkish musician, and he's a Sufi master also. Mm -hmm. So we shared, um, uh, I found it very much easy to, to relate to how he was describing the world. And so the idea of connection, you know, it's a funny thing, like in Buddhism, you know, we talk about egolessness, and people can mistakenly take that as a nihilistic perception. Mm. But that's an inaccurate perception. Egolessness means just the fictional part of the identity is is uh, not worth uh, you know continuing to nurture. Um, yes. But the flip side is called interdependence. Mm -hmm. So the, I think the connection idea of of um, recognizing um, how how interdependent, how connected things are, and also I think in all these traditions, when you really plug into that, a certain level of magic manifests. Because, I think so too. Right, you know, things just synchronize up in a certain way. We call it tendril in, in Tibetan, like mm -hmm. auspicious coincidence. Mm -hmm. So have you had that, uh, like, was, would you say, um, in your career, it seems like you've had some tendril about just being in the right place at the right time? I feel like my whole life has kind of been like that. Like, mm -hmm. my first part of my life was really bumpy, and I had a lot of issues <laughs> with being human and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. and just very messy. And then I feel like, my life has just been this series of magical synchronicities and I either fight against them or I go with them. And I don't even feel like, like there's a lot of Western spirituality, like law of attraction, you have to manifest and you have to do this and you have to do that. I don't really relate to being the doer in my life in a sense. Like I'm very, very achievement oriented and I'm very um, driven. And at the same time, like, I don't see myself as being the one doing any of it. So it's kind mm, of a... Wow, that's an interesting paradox. It's a contradictory, you know, and I used to, like, a lot of my spiritual teachers would be like, you know, slow down, just be, just be. And I'm like, I came to this realization like a year ago. I'm like, I am not a human beer. I'm a doer. Uh -huh. Like, I'm a doer. I'm an achiever. If I try to go against that part of my nature, I get really depressed, actually. Yeah. Well, they, they say Frank Sinatra had the solution for that equation. Did you know that? No, what is it? Dooby dooby doo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had to give that up. I had to give that up, though. <laughs> yeah. You got to do both. I mean, and that's, totally... I think, you know, that's what's, I feel like that thread is weaving its way through the fabric of a lot of people I talk to. Some are more doers, some are more beers, but, you know, it, it feels clear that the integration of those things is where a lot of, a, a lot of, uh, energy could very constructively go. The doers left the being behind, and the beers left the doing behind. Yeah, we need to reintegrate. Yeah, for sure. Which is my whole platform is all is is completely about that. And I don't care which side you're coming from. If it's if it's a doer who wants to be, that's there's tons of room. And and then in the middle, there's this third thing of just expressing um, the uniqueness of your own little passing moment here. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the little flower arrangement of each person. And, um, it's beautiful. Yeah, so um, I, I think this is interesting. Do you have a sense of, um, it's five years from now, this might be a more, I've noticed with sometimes the masculine and the feminine, men might think more this way, okay, it's five, it's ten years from now, and here, here's where we are. And I'm finding that in my business world, the men are really like looking ahead. And I'm going, well, we may never get there. 
you know, so where are we now and what are we mm -hmm. really trying to do? And um, do, do you feel you have a vision for, is there any kind of glimpse of like, oh yeah, in five years I'd like to be running my own company, I'd like to be uh, balancing off and being a creative or start a new kind of company. Do you have a, a, a vision like that? You know, I really joined forces with Richard's company partially because we just get along so well. And a lot of it, and I told him this, a lot of it is because I'm not a business person as much as I am a marketer. So I don't really like growing teams or managing people. And one of the things that I really want to do with his company is grow it into the, the top platform for this type of marketing. There's a company called Digital Marketer. I think they're like a $50 million a year company. And they sell a lot of like, if you want to know how to write an email, you can buy a $7 or a $47 training. It's like just this digital marketing library. And I kind of want to do that in the conscious marketing space. And so that's really what I am working towards right now. I'm creating a lot of content behind the scenes for us to start putting it out there. And he has so much wisdom and knowledge to pass on too. So, you know, I really want to do that. And then in another area of my life, which is more philanthropic, I'm really interested in getting plastic out of the oceans. Like that's a big oh, thing. For you Ocean, know. You know, that company for Ocean. Yeah, they're one of the companies that I donate the most to and, you know, Me buy too. all the... Because it's so, their, so beautiful yeah. how they're doing it. It's yeah. so beautiful. Yeah, I buy their bracelets even though they don't fit me. They're too big. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when I saw that ad and those people, I said, that looks so genuine. I just sent money in right away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how unarguable it is, how mm -hmm. whether it's politically correct, not correct, it doesn't matter. Who wants plastic? Who wants fish choking on plastic in, in, as you're yeah. swimming through it? It's gross. That, yeah, that's... Um, so you could see doing some philanthropic work or focusing some of the resources that you develop into the direction of, of that. Um, that's the, and you found a partner in business. That's not so easy. You know that, right? Yeah, it was very magical. Actually, I don't know if you knew this, but I forgot to share this little piece of my spiritual lineage, which is that I've studied bodywork and healing and just been really family level with some Maori elders from New Zealand. Oh. And so the woman that's really kind of, I call her my second mom. She like raised me through my twenties and she, she is the godmother of Richard's kids. And so we didn't even know each other what? and we were both living in San Diego and somebody said, you guys don't know each other. Like, you know, these same Maori healer people and you're both digital marketers and you don't even know each other. Wow. And that's how we met. It was like four years ago. And we, stuck our toes in the water. We did a few projects together. And then after a while, I got really clear that I just wanted to work with him full time. That's amazing. And as you know, some of the most successful partnerships in history, Lennon, McCartney, whoever you want to look at, those people don't necessarily end up liking each other after it. I know, right? It's a kind of funny, uh, it's almost like the other person's completing them in a way that is hard for the ego to acknowledge that, mm -hmm. that, that, you know, that, that a, a whole another part of you is coming to fruition because somebody else's gifts and skills. Totally. So that's so so you could see that partnership lasting and, and evolving deeper. I think so. Yeah. You know, that's definitely wow. the trajectory that that's the commitment that we've made. Mm, that's amazing. And hard to find. I really want to go on record as saying maybe it's yeah. me, but it's that's not been an easy thing to find uh in this life and um you know comedy teams, you know Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner, that's like a home run for all time, you know, when that totally. happens. Yeah. So um, there are big players in the space now, and it's interesting, some of the 
financial people, you know, people coming from the doer side of, of my particular mandala, are looking up and they're going, oh my God, this Calm app just got valued at $2 billion. What's going on over there, Dave? You know, what's happening in that <laughs> world? Yeah, that little esoteric world of yours. Now, again, using the analogy of the record business, which, you know, is very familiar to me over the years, but when I woke up two weeks ago, whenever we had that session, I said, oh my God, this is the new record business. There's a million presenters. They've got their demo reels. They've got their, <laughs> um, you know, uh, they've got their do-it-yourself level. They've got the indie label level, which is, I've got some professional people help me. And then you got the major label artists, you know, who, are, who have to, at that point, sell millions of records. That whole industry is only organized around that. And they'll take 10 artists on, but if one of them sells 3 million records, the, the, their business model works. Totally. So it's an interesting uh, analogy for it. And um, in this world where there's all these presenters, um, I don't know if you can even feel comfortable talking about this, so feel free to... to are, are there any teachers or presenters that really you go, oh my goodness, that person's really, really telling it like it is and... and has almost a universal message and, and um, mm -hmm. you know, you would want to get that message out to people just uh, because it's so authentic and, and um, so, so meaningful. Well, I'll tell you, for me, it's less about the person and more about the mission. And so like for ocean, I don't even know those guys. I don't know anything about them, but I would be so happy to amplify what they're doing. And, you know, we did, I think the, the launch, we did 37 lunches last year. I was probably involved with seven of them. But um, the one that I was the most proud of for the agency was the Collective Trauma Healing Summit. So it was Thomas Hubel, and he's such a beautiful man. And he brought together like 80 presenters on trauma and healing. He brought together poets and indigenous storytellers and people like people from Harvard psychiatry to that might be a misquote, but people from like Ivy League psychiatry to, you know, a poet to a musician. And it was it was, you know, we had like over a hundred thousand people join that summit. And to me, that was like a, you know, to be able to make a conversation like trauma healing and how it connects to climate change and how it connects to racism and how it connects to social injustice. And, you know, that's what I was saying in the ads, like, like understanding collective trauma is the root to everything that we're facing right now. And and um, to be able to make a message like that reach so many people and have so many people engage with it, that's really what excites me the most about my work. So 100,000 people were online at one, at all for one, at one time for one conference? Well, you know, people can get the recordings, so they may or may not all be right. there at the same time, but they're all engaging with the same material, which I think is so cool. You know, what's interesting about it to me, that number, 100,000 rings a bell, because it's around what a packed stadium can do. Maybe yeah. it's a big packed stadium. And, you know, you and I have talked about this, but the um, the uh, irony and extreme eccentricity of the fact that I was going back and forth between playing this with this band with Jerry Garcia and then going to study with Trunk Pro Impeche, uh, you know, and I, I, I said, how do you tell that story about who that, that person is, which in this case is me. I'm still trying to figure out how to tell that story. <laughs> but there we are opening for a Grateful Dead concert. And, and there's 100,000 people. And I just saw the Martin Scorsese film on the dead. Have you seen that by any chance, mm -hmm. the documentary? It's, mm -hmm. it's interesting on so many levels because it was a culture that was being totally spontaneously created. 
And there were key players in it. You know, there were like, um, you know, Jerry obviously was like a major figure, but it really wasn't about him per se. Mm -hmm. It was about the culture and people would go there to meet other people. You know, it, it, it was uh, a community driven event. And now you can do that online uh, without anybody even leaving their backyard. I the know. exact same experience in a certain way. It's crazy, isn't it? Is there a physical version of that? You think that's still going to be, you know, what would have happened if that, if that conference had been live or partially live? You know, that would have been amazing. I, I think that one of the really cool things about it being online is people from like 80 countries participated. Mm. And I also think that we're going to start moving into a hybrid model where there's in-person events, but there's online components of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And people, people yeah. have already been doing that, but I think it's going to be much more common so, but I mean, you can't replace the energy of an in-person gathering, you know, you just yeah, can't. It's funny. It has its own energy, but so does online. Like, yeah, uh, you're right. The people are right in your face online. It's an interesting thing. You have, everybody's got a close up. That's you know? so true. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, I had, I had one therapist friend of mine say, I can't do it online because the person's face is just right there. I, I want them lying down on the couch. And so I, I, can, <laughs> I, I can't even take a nap while they're talking anymore. <laughs> oh my God, that's so funny. So, um, yeah, so it's, uh, it's an interesting realm that we're entering. And, you know, it seems like the vision that you bring to something can be manifested if you get the tools along the way to do that. So what you visualize is important right now. Mm-hmm. You know, mm -hmm. what, you, what your intention is and particularly what one's motivation is. Yeah, so in, in closing up shop here, I'm curious, what, what, how would you summarize your intention or motivation if you had to just tell that story? You know, it's probably not that different from what Buddhism talks about with like ending suffering. Yeah. So I've just always had such a sensitive heart and I feel like so many people are suffering in ways that it's not necessary like it's not necessary that people don't have food or people don't have clean water or that we're still using dirty energy. Like none of these things are necessary. But what I realized is that the stories that we tell are what keep us looped into certain just habitual habits, whether they're negative or positive. So for me, I just, you know, after spending a long time thinking about it, I, I thought my disruptive contribution is going to be disrupting the stories and the narratives that are being told and, and, and that's my best shot at making a change, you know, so we'll see what happens, but I'm really dedicated to seeing a more just world because a lot of the problems that we have, I just don't see them as being, you know, we're still in survival mode and we don't need to be. Yeah. It's not necessary. It's such a great line. Yeah. Just, just put the picture up. It's not necessary. Yeah. You, you put the picture of um, George Floyd being, yeah. it's not necessary. No. You put the picture up of the of the plastic in the ocean. It's not necessary. And change the story, change the world. Yeah, exactly. That, that's what the shamans say. It's true. You, you change the story and you change uh, the way things are. That's really, um, and I, I, my personal feeling is you're uniquely qualified to do, you, you're very much on uh, the target of, in, in alignment, your intention and your actions are very much in alignment, Kylie. You know, it's Thank you. It's really... Thank um, you. It's, it's inspiring. Um, is, there, is there anything you would like to let people know about in terms of upcoming things or uh, anything that you want to um, punch up for, for, for the audience here? Yeah, I mean, 
Conscious Marketer is growing really fast and it would be great just to check out that website if you want to. You know, we have an agency side and we have a training side and we're always looking to support people that are in the transformational space, in the healing space. It, it may or may not, you know, we only take on a few projects, so there may or may not be a fit, obviously, but we love to get to know people. So, And so the website would be? It's ConsciousMarketer.com. Okay, and we'll put that in the in the uh, in the notes on the talk too. Cool. Um, yeah, what a pleasure, Kali. Thank you so much for uh, you know for um, just uh, rambling together for for a bit. So, thank you. Thanks yeah. for having me. It's okay. an honor to be here with you. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening, friends, and that wraps up episode number twenty-one of the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast. We thank you for listening. If you enjoy the podcast and what you hear here, we encourage you to go to your favorite pod app and leave a rating so we can spread the good word. Also, a friendly reminder to please head over to dharmamoon.com to see all of our offerings and to take part in our community of practice and cultivation. And you may notice that there have been some changes in this episode, so please tune back often. We're going to start having weekly content with David discussing our themes of integrating these aspects of our life in a healthy way. We'll probably also be changing the music. So in this final send-off for Thank Kevin from David's album From Here to Nicturnity has lots of great stuff in it. You've only heard the beginning, but there's lots of great music to appreciate on this track, including a beautiful saxophone solo from none other than Lenny Pickett, whom you may recognize from his decades on SNL. So we're going to conclude this episode with Mr. Pickett playing us out. May you be safe, healthy, happy, and at ease.